Hi, this is Rafi, your host of the Evolutionary Lens podcast. I just want to let you know that you can support me at rafaelsertoli.substack.com. You can get some free articles and emails, and you can also uh, subscribe for some more in-depth content. Thanks. Okay, hello everyone. This is uh, Rafi, and I'm here with Gabor. Uh, this is a somewhat of a, a break nutrition uh, podcast reunion in the times of COVID to just uh, shoot the shit and uh, talk anything that uh, that comes to mind with regards to COVID and science and and hopefully immunometabolism. Maybe that's going to be our theme or or maybe it's going to be angry political ramblings. I'm not sure yet. We, <laughs> maybe we can do both. Let's let's see where the, the night takes us. Uh, so thanks for taking the time, Gabor. Sure, no problem. Uh, I think um, if you want to take it uh, to the political direction, then it's most likely I, I'm going to be a listener, not a, <laughs> it's not really a discussion because I'm not really I'm not much into politics. Um, it's difficult to avoid these days, but uh, I think it's uh, kind of the clash of science and, and politics what's uh, been happening uh, over the last uh, couple of months or almost a year now. And uh, many politicians uh, pose as uh, following the science and nothing is further from the truth. Um, and uh, some scientists uh, grab the opportunity to come out to the limelight and uh, pose as uh, with probably political aspirations late for later. I don't know, but uh, they really like uh, the spotlight and, and uh, like to give these um, interviews uh, to mainstream media and uh, talk often talk a little bit of bullshit um, but uh, yeah it's uh, there are also vested interests uh, some of these scientists uh, are known to be involved in in uh, antibody testing antibody treatments uh, PCR testing or vaccine uh, developments and, and various uh, attempts which can easily be considered as conflicts of uh, of interest, I think. Yeah, I think the uh, conflicts of interest abound. I think, of course, the politicians, as expected, are going to follow the very obvious incentives that they pretend aren't ruling them and their actions. But, you know, that's not really where I my mind goes to first. Actually, I'm much more much more disappointed with the general scientific establishment as one. Um, I think that's that's maybe where where it's more jarring to me to see uh, a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses uh, lose contact with reality when comparing year on year how their service was affected, uh, and maybe being totally unable to you know get outside of their anecdote, however telling it may be, and actually you know fulfill the role that they're doing in public health, which is being informed, first of all. I think that's everyone's responsibility, whether you're a nurse or a doctor or you're a researcher. I think your basic level of information preparedness during a pandemic remains a primary responsibility. And, you know, just help to drive the fear and not, uh, even if you don't know, you don't need to have the answers, but what you do need to encourage is the proper approach, the proper consideration of the science. And I think that's the only thing that I would have liked to have seen. I didn't need nurses and doctors to be qualified epidemiologists or immunologists. That's not what I was expecting. I just would have liked the defense of the basic scientific principles that go into 
assessing this. So that was where it was more disappointing for me personally. Um, I don't know if really the scientists let us down first. Who knows? Because we don't even know the origin of this virus yet. It's still in dispute whether it has a lab origin or whether I have it has my a... I have my suspicions, yeah. but uh, let's let's avoid. Uh, oh, let's go there. Let's go there. <laughs> let's go there. I, I want to uh, go there okay. because it's you know the problem is it's I don't think it's at the stage where it's ripe for a conspiracy, because I think the level you and I are looking at it is where were the cells passaged in? You know, from from what species yeah. and. And that sort of stuff. I had I had followed mainstream opinion for quite a, quite a long time. I think um, started in March when you saw the papers appearing in Nature Medicine and another high-profile uh, papers or journals that uh, oh, it cannot be uh, lab origin. This is uh, these are the proofs. These I was dismissive. Uh, it was based on on some sequencing that I hadn't looked into, but I was yeah, dismissive. based on several things. But uh, at that, that time, I was not really into the background science, so I couldn't even uh, judge properly uh, if they were right or or, or not. And then uh, my focus uh, had been on on, on other uh, aspects of of the of the epidemic, and you know the usual metabolic uh, problems and these kind of things and and uh, looked into masking and and we right. other weird weird things uh, a lot of influenza stuff uh, i had to read uh, back on because uh, i just uh, hadn't been following uh, the this uh, part of science up until uh, q1 this year so and then uh, suddenly during sometime during the summer i during some you know, when I do some do some research, I read a lot and I check the references, I check the citing literature, and, and mm -hmm. then go about uh, for hours. On on sometimes I can spend hours on one paper, uh, mm -hmm. reading the references, reading the citing literature, uh, clicking on links, uh, related oh, you articles. Can, you can, I'm whatever. sure you can spend a day or more. I know it's happened and, to me. Where yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Where and, you spend and, uh, more than and a day. suddenly, suddenly I found the paper which was looking at um, peptide mimicry uh, between uh, the spike protein of uh, SARS-CoV-2 and, uh, and uh, different uh, potential host uh, animals. And um, uh, it didn't seem interesting at all <laughs> for, for the, the first uh, reading the abstract was uh, okay. But then I started scrolling through and uh, when when I when I got to uh, figure one, uh, something was uh, just striking uh, out, poking out from 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 my iPad screen, and uh, it was uh, two co two uh, columns mm -hmm. uh, with very high level of mimicry, and um, it was based on uh, different hosts, and uh, the mimicry was very low. Uh, it was totally uns not similar to to other coronaviruses. It was not uh, uh, similar to uh, non-human primates. Uh, uh, it was not similar to pets like cats and dogs and whatever. And uh, there was, I would say, extreme mimicry between humans and the spike protein, mm -hmm. which is definitely not explained by the time it's spent 
um, I mean, confirmed uh, time spent in humans, like from last year, October, yeah, basically November year last ago, year. Yeah, or a bit more. Yeah, the paper is from the summer, so then it was right. even a shorter time. Mm -hmm. I think they submitted it in, during the late spring. Um, so it was half a year. And uh, that, that level of mimicry is uh, implausible in, in uh, half a year. And then what, what was even more striking, it was exactly the same level of mimicry with our good old friend called Mus Musculus, mm. which is the common house uh, mouse, uh, nice. which, is, which is rather interesting because uh, uh, just a week before that, I had read an, another paper uh, which discussed that, uh, okay, we, we were not able to use regular mice for lab experiments because regular mice had uh, so different ACE2 receptors that uh, mice were not susceptible to SARS-CoV-2 infections. So they had to develop actually uh, humanized ACE2 mice. But that happened uh, actually back in 2013 or, or 15 or so many years ago and uh, for, for SARS-CoV, uh, the, the first one, which was um, spreading in 2003. Yep. So after that, they developed these humanized ACE2 mice so that they can uh, use them in, in, in the lab. So my first thought was, how, is, how was this uh, extreme level of, uh, of mimicry plausible between mouse proteins and and uh, viral spike protein, because mouse the, the mice are not a host a known host for for this virus, so nobody nobody implicates uh, mice as a intermediate host. For example, it's it's implausible, and um, then I think only one plausible ex explanation remains: these uh, ACE2 humanized mice. These mice doesn't exist outside of a lab. So right. what's going on then? But yeah. I mean, that, that <laughs> level of mimicry suggests that uh, the virus spent a considerable amount, amount of time, or I mean, considerable, considerable cycles of replication, number of cycles of replication in that kind of uh, host, or at mm -hmm. least cells. Because otherwise, uh, it won't develop. You know, uh, these, uh, these, this kind of mimicry develops when uh, the, the, the virus is budding from the host cell. And, and uh, it, it, uh, release, it is released with uh, uh, the, the same, um, it's a very similar glycosylation. And over time, the, even the, the, the genome uh, adjusts to, to, um, to the, uh, some of the host proteins, or at least some of the host peptides some some uh, parts of the, the host uh, proteins. So that was a kind of a shock. And, and uh, that, that was the time when I started looking for, for information, if, if there is anything else uh, about a potential lab origin. And then, uh, of course, if you start looking, you, you start finding. And uh, there are some other boggling uh, coincidences and, and, uh, and uh, piece of information information that that uh, points to that uh, direction so i wouldn't uh, dismiss 
lab origin at this stage. I'm not saying that uh, this uh, virus is certainly uh, of uh, lab or origin, but I don't think that uh, many of the, the initial um, uh, explanations, uh, retrospectively, these more seem like explain, explaining away some odd findings than, than plausible explanations. Um, right. you, you are not really welcome to discuss this openly. Although I think uh, everything should, should be discussed openly uh, in science. So there are some exceptions. You can follow uh, Alina Chen, for example, on, on Twitter. Uh, she's in a MIT lab, if I'm not mistaken, with, with, and, uh, with some colleagues. They, uh, they uh, are doing some some investigations and uh, there are also some whistleblowers from China um, telling some not implausible uh, things because uh, you know um, I think that uh, the, the protein uh, the peptide mimicry points to um, long time which which is most likely uh, which most likely could come from uh, Passaging or whatever it's called in, uh, I think it's called the same way in English. Yeah, so where, uh, yeah, um, which is um, if people don't know, it's where you uh, basically you have the cells in a little petri dish and you introduce the virus to them, and the cells basically go through replicative cycles with the virus, and they you know produce the virus, and basically you get that interaction, the passages. Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, uh, if if you look at the whole. Uh, virus and how it, it, it's different from any potential long time predecessors. Um, it, it definitely was, it was definitely shaped by a working immune system. So it's, it's not only cell culture. It, it should have mm. been, it should have spent time in humans based on the pep, peptide mimicry at least right. and in, in mice. Um, mm -hmm. and, and in mice, of course, mice are not uh, susceptible hosts. So only ACE2 humanized mice mm -hmm. come to the, come into the picture. Yeah. And, uh, that, that is a strong one for, for, uh, lab origin or if it was not engineered, but it, it spent some time in, in a lab, uh, accommodating, uh, different, uh, organisms. Um, right. and then probably escaped or whatever i don't know um but uh, th there are some more details for example do you know the furin cleavage site mm -hmm. uh, the chance to develop a furin cleavage site via passaging i think is extremely low so that's that's another suspicious point uh, change compared to previous. I, I'm not aware of any other coronavirus which has the furin cleavage site. Okay. Uh, we know, we know, for example, HIV and other viruses uh, have this, which increases their virulence uh, greatly. And uh, this virus somehow just obtained this furin cleavage sign between the two spike uh, subunits, S1 and S2, mm -hmm. which is I would say rather intriguing. <laughs> right. It's um, from what I, I had understood initially was that the sequencing had been done and there was no sign of CRISPR uh, manipulation, essentially. However, 
I think that's actually not necess- that's not necessarily the only way that you can introduce mutations. Like we said, you can do it by having it evolve in another organism, and then the uh, marks that you're looking for aren't necessarily going to be of the same nature as a CRISPR as a CRISPR uh, clue would be when you're sequencing the the genome. So I think that introduced more doubt to me and opened up the possibility that indeed it it could have been uh, evolving in uh, in other hosts, um, and the ACE2, the humanized ACE2 uh, receptor in the mice, uh, could be that missing link to explain how they could have, in fact, done that. Uh, so that's that's really interesting, I think. Yeah. So um, that's where I am uh, regarding at least the um, the origin. And you, you know, every, most likely everybody read about uh, the um, the Yunnan. Yunnan, whatever it's uh, pronounced, the uh, the Chinese name. It's a uh, it's a Wuhan? prefecture in in China. No, the Yunnan. Oh, the Yunnan province. Okay. Yes, where gotcha. where the 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 mines and the the caves and the beds are, mm-hmm. uh, which is more than a thousand miles away from from uh, Wuhan, mm-hmm. which is which in itself I think is a little bit intriguing. So well, when you right. have all the bad, all the viruses in south. Uh, Southwest China, uh, and then uh, you have a lab, uh, you have an outbreak in uh, northeast China. Then it's a, uh, it's it's a very, it's rather intriguing. But it's, it's um, just, uh, it's just fascinating how close the market and that lab were, <laughs> or are yeah. actually. It's just yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now I think now nobody nobody believes that the market was the actual starting point of uh, of the the first infection occurred somewhere close to the market but not not uh, at the market right so, i think you'd have to have a very specific evidence for that because they could have so and, much and, more time elsewhere to evolve basically yeah and also if you you know that uh, harvard study which uh, looked into the um, hospital movements uh, satellite data in wuhan and uh, this unusual uh, surge in uh, hospital visits started end of august last mm. year and then it went uh, through oh, wow. yeah it went through all all september and october so mm-hmm. this uh, december reported december outbreak may not be or there were two viruses or whatever but something strange uh, also happened a couple of months earlier and in italy it appeared in november they have from blood samples now established it appeared in november yeah new new study uh, claims that uh, it it must have been there uh, since uh, summer last year, because uh, they measured uh, antibodies starting from August, mm-hmm. and then September, and then uh, the interesting thing is that antibodies went down, and then it started the, the resurgence um, started in January only. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it might have been two viruses, and then it could explain a lot of pre-existing immunity, especially in Asia, where spread yeah, is true. expected more widely. But this 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 is pure speculation at this point. Uh, there there is a lot of attack on this paper, um, which which claims that uh, in Italy um, the zero prevalence was high already in um, September last year. Mm. Um, I think it's I, I don't know. Um, their methods seemed okay you know the the thing is we have uh there's there's so much immunity in the young that we're not going to detect by looking at the igm 
that it's you know it's i'm i'm not i'm not so sure yet that the that we're very good at it we, we can do some pretty decent estimates based on testing a population with an antibody test that if we're talking about immunity at that level we can give a pretty decent estimate i would say but to to estimate the real one taking into account the people who are going to have an iga response you know in the mucosa of their throat and, and lungs and nasal passages and not have it show up in the blood because they've neutralized the virus that way. That's probably not a minor part of the population. So it's, it's, it's so, hard so to So far, it seems, at least it seems that uh, even asymptomatics uh, develop uh, antibodies. Um, so, yeah. I mean, systemic antibodies. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, most confirmed uh, asymptomatics who, who were later um, measured for um, antibodies were, were positive, the, mm. the vast majority. So um, the, those claims uh, that um, talk about uh, people um, just uh, repelling the virus without any measurable i mean of course you could measure in the the mucosa but it, mm -hmm. it seems that uh, eventually they also uh, develop uh, some some uh, systemic antibodies yeah so, i wonder about that that would be nice to 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 know more uh, more precisely um but um you know i was the, the thing is we rarely confirm those population samples with like viral cultures which would be the gold standard it's rare uh, to be done but when it's done it's really telling and i was just reading uh carl hennigan's uh, review you know he submitted uh and uh when you look at what's being done with viral cultures you you see that the numbers are quite different from what you obtain in the field so it's i think it's really something we have to start to do more uh more rigorously because you you end up wasting so much time repeating large-scale tests without ever improving your certainty in your results, basically. Uh, so that- Yeah, but viral cultures can be done only in uh, BSL three or four labs. Right. So right. It's, it's not, not so easy. And then, you know, there's a difference between, at least as far as I know, there's a difference between the different cell cultures you use. So if you use a viral cells, for example, they are much more susceptible right. uh, to, to infection. Yeah, so they will show up much lower uh, viral titers than, than human ep epithelial cells, for example. So, but, but that's okay for a test because all you need it is to be consistent. So when you're looking for PCR, for example, as long as you're using the same kind of cell line and you know what kind of, uh, of, of level basically you need in order to obtain sufficient live viral culture produce a culture then you can standardize it so you're right from a model perspective you want it to infect human cells not vero cells and that's definitely important but to standardize a test in terms of precision all you need is to actually standardize it then you can choose different uh, cell lines i think so yeah. it, it depends what you're trying to answer basically but from a mass testing perspective like to establish an evidence base just of reliability i think we like it's 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 crazy. Uh, there's this, this very long article by um, um, uh, Yeden, you know the guy from uh, Pfizer. Um, yeah. 
explaining a lot of the the lab procedures that that's going wrong in these places in the UK that they've set up the, on a very short schedule. It's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. You just cannot trust what's coming out of there. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, it's uh, there are a lot of a lot of uh, different opinions, and uh, when it comes to researchers with very little um, public health or or broader problem solving experience. Uh, you see that uh, they they just maintain this uh, narrow research lab perspective. I just read um, the other day uh, kind of a scientific opinion piece by a um, Australian virologist who said that uh, look, uh, our lab uh, doesn't see meaningful levels of false positives. Uh, all the other labs in Australia don't see. Uh, meaningful levels of false positives, so there are no false positives. Right. I think uh, the, this is not really a, um, a uh, practical way of thinking, because yeah. um, Australia, especially without the levels of mass testing going on in other countries, in other larger countries, uh, it, it runs only a limited number of tests, and they have, uh, as far as I know, they have a, a single protocol supervised by a scientific body, and because they they have they haven't been overwhelmed with with these tests. But in many countries, uh, to increase uh, testing, they made huge compromises. Yeah. They involved labs which do not really stand up to scrutiny. They didn't uh, hire qualified scientists. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they they uh, sometimes uh, I saw in Italy uh, when when these surges uh, occur in infections, they just let go uh, some of the genes which they are looking for in, in yeah, the exactly. PCR. They know, so, without the control, without right. uh, triple genes fo being followed, they just look for only for one gene. Then your sensitivity uh, decreases and and the specificity also decreases. So your false positives go up like uh, crazy. Right. I so mean, let, let's name like, it for people. You have the membrane protein, the nucleocapsid, uh, 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 you know, uh, parts. Then you have the uh, membrane protein, the spike protein. So you have some some options. And now we're going. We have some tests that are going down to just looking at one, like the, just the spike protein, for example. Um, of course, you're going to get a lot of nonsense uh, results from that. You, you, you have to. And there's a reason why we were doing, I think, triplicate, right? We were doing three different uh, um, genes, basically. Yeah, and, and the proper control. Um, and proper control. Yeah, and, and I think, so, yeah, uh, technical false positives can be a problem in some countries, in some labs, and definitely uh, have, uh, it has been a problem in some countries and some lab some labs it's, it's not a not a blanket um, yeah. observation like the, that right. uh, like the NHS we, we doing fine we also know about, yeah we, we also know about uh, labs which which run at an extremely low overall positivity level so if if, mm -hmm. if their positivity is 0.2 percent it's quite uh, obvious that your false positive rate cannot be 0 0.8 or, or 1% right. because your overall positive rate is 0 0.2. Right. So th these labs are running just fine and, and the technical false positives is not an issue. Um, um, but uh, it's, I mean, there is, I think Kevin McKernan um, calls mm -hmm. it uh, epidemi epidemiological false positive. 
right. when they run it to very high uh, cycle tre- threshold levels yeah. and uh, they call everybody a case uh, who has a positive PCR mm-hmm. test test result and we, we the, many of these guys are almost certainly not infectious so in in a, in a sure. epidemic in a epidemic we should focus on uh, infectious people and and quarantine infectious people because when you start quarantining uh, basically everybody who presents with a positive test result uh, and up to 90% can be non infectious um, in some circumstances and and then you quarantine even their other household all the all, all their contacts Sometimes uh, all the all the close, uh, close contacts are quarantined as well. So they quarantine masses of uh, of non-infectious people. Yeah. Uh, that's that's certainly worrisome. Uh, I I, uh, I wouldn't be happy if I was quarantined based on uh, a friend's uh, positive test, uh, knowing that the friend friend was uh, over the the infection weeks before. Yeah. Yeah, there are PCR tests that, that will catch it up to 78 days after the first onset of symptoms. So really, you can, you can sort of make magic from it. You know, it's this very powerful amplificator. And, you, and it's, its power is also its uh, downside, which is if you set those cycles too high, around 30, 35, even 40, you're going to completely overshoot because actually most of the positive, true positive, and true negative samples you're going to get. Basically, the estimate I've come down to is around 23. 23 cycles seems to be a very reasonable place to set it. Uh, yeah, which, think, and it can um, be adjusted, right? You can't have internal standards in the lab and decide to adjust it. But around that level, certainly not 35. I think uh, the, the very rarely you can find uh, infectious, I mean, so-called live virus, at uh, at a um, cycle threshold of uh, 35 but uh, this occurs mainly due to the fact that uh, some pre-symptomatics are also uh, measured and they start shedding live virus when you when you measure them and of course it's it's important uh, to capture uh, these uh, pre-symptomatic people so i think uh, uh, Good compromise could be made that uh, you you use a cycle threshold of 35, but if if uh, anything between 25 and 35 or whatever uh, threshold, I think it's it's lab dependent to, mm-hmm. to some extent. Uh, you can you can draw a line in the sand for for any lab that uh, between 25 and 35 you should uh, repeat the test 48 hours later because uh, then right. you will see 48 hours later you will see that uh, the guy has more virus or or more viral rna right. or less viral rna so exactly. what what is what He's is the actual the trajectory yeah. yeah what is the actual trajectory right. if this guy is uh, getting out of disease or he's he he, he has just uh, started shedding even more uh, viruses and then she has uh, he has to be or she has to be quarantined that's fine but uh, without doing so, it's, it creates a huge mess. And, and also, I don't know why it has to be, it had to be thrown out the window, but uh, uh, positive test results uh, had never been called cases right. uh, before, before 2020. 
Yeah, course, let, uh, let's explain that true. because it's a, it's a complete in like total inversion of what's been done before. So what, what's a case? Like let's uh, define normal, a case. Normally a case is somebody who presents with the symptoms of a disease. Symptom based. Then, then yes, you have the typical symptoms and then you are verified with some lab uh, protocol that uh, you seem to have the, the, the infectious agent. You are virus or bacteria uh, positive uh, according to some, some lab uh, protocol. Then uh, you are a confirmed case. So you are a case if you have symptoms, if you present with typical symptoms in the middle of an epidemic, so if, if, if you know that we have a, a SARS-CoV-2 epidemic going on and the guy presents with a fever, a dry cough, um, muscle pain, Headache. diarrhea or whatever, typical, typical uh, symptoms, then he's a case. And then uh, there is a test done on the, the fork and if it's positive, he's a confirmed case. So I think that it, it, it has been as simple as that for decades. And suddenly everybody with a, with a positive test is called a case. Case, yeah. Case exactly. of what? Completely I, forget the uh, Cox postulates, not paying attention to, to anything we would do with influenza or, or any other you know, infectious disease and just completely so, invent the rules. A case of showing viral particles. That's the exact uh, definition. <laughs> that's, that's the crime. But, yeah, does it make uh, any sense? Who is a, yes, who is a case? Want who to, wants to be a case of uh, showing viral particles? If you want to drive fear, it's genius. Show people that you're doing a lot by doing a lot of testing, yet ensure that you have the excuse to keep doing what you're doing to, you know. Yeah, so uh, in fact, uh, it's, it's uh, fascinating that uh, we usually condemn uh, lower sensitivity uh, methods for, for identifying uh, whatever markers or, or pathogens. But uh, in this case, uh, the, the quick tests make a little bit more sense. Because right. uh, uh, for, for the price of a single PCR, you can do, I don't know exactly, four or five uh, quick tests. Yeah. And uh, doing a quick test for five days every day for a single uh, PCR, you can uh, capture a lot more useful data and mm -hmm. you, you omit the useless data uh, because uh, the, the, the quick test device has a uh, lower sensitivity and uh, this way it won't be positive when you have low, very low viral loads or you have no vir viruses, just uh, viral particles, of course. Mm -hmm then uh, it won't, uh, won't show up as positive or, or it will show up as positive much less frequently. And actually using four or five quick tests seem, seems to make a lot more sense now uh, based on our experience uh, this year than, than doing one single PCR, especially when omitting uh, genes and, and the control runs and the control genes and these kind of uh, things to to be able to run more tests yeah and you know it's 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 really a pity because there's nothing inherently wrong with pcr nor the lateral flow it's just a question of using them at the right time and this was one of the points that uh, dr claire craig had made about you know using the pcr as it was at the start of the epidemic where it's very sensitive that's okay because you really want to find every positive case and quarantine the person who's positive and is coughing. 
right? That that makes sense. You're you're okay with the bias being in that direction. However, the later part of the epidemic, you know, you have to adjust your cycles maybe a bit more rigorously and lower that and understand that the sensitivity is going to be a, a not in your favor now that you've had a uh, a first wave of a high increase in immunity and thus a, a less uh, a lower amount of susceptible people in a sense, right? And a lot of people who have passed away, unfortunately, and those sort of things. And then, like you said, even if you combine it with the lateral flow, for example, doing PCR, maybe around 25 cycles and, or just around there, and then confirm with the lateral flow, which is cheap and you can repeat, you know, do some confirmatory testing. Don't base it without the symptoms. I mean, there's a lot of basic stuff that can be done to avoid, I think, the pseudo epidemic, but talk of, but maybe address the ripple, as uh, Yidin called it, right? This ripple, which is in fact a resurgence that actually we should talk about because uh, let's, let, let's talk about masks and let's talk about uh, seasonality of respiratory viruses because I think there's, there's a lot there that is going to be important in order to understand what we're going through now and why it was predicted and maybe the masks had this effect. You know, again, unintended consequences. We see this all the time. And we were talking about this before recording. So why don't you go with uh, what you were telling me, Gabor? about seasonality or? yeah and and especially about the the places that you know lock down harder masked up harder and and are yeah, some um, i live in a country which is a prime example uh with some of the neighbors um which uh locked down early and uh, very strictly so for example comparing to the uk uh, hungary and, and the czech republic um locked down uh a week earlier and while while the the viral spread was uh, i think behind at least two or three weeks so that's a, that's almost a month overall if you, if you can imagine because uh, these are smaller uh, a little economically less advanced uh, less travelers uh, less busy airports and so on and so forth so uh, these countries were behind in the initial spread by several weeks mm -hmm. and then they locked down a week earlier and very strictly and then people were scared and that utterance was was really high in these countries um, you could so argue see, that lockdown was more likely to work in that case where you had some foresight before there were some positive cases yeah yeah i think yeah. i think uh, we just followed uh, other neighbors so these countries are always look at uh, neighbors to the west you know germany austria yeah. and what what they are doing and uh, and uh, while the spread was behind by several weeks they they made the same uh, interventions uh, at the same time basically or, or only one or one or day, two days uh, later so I think uh, actually um, I don't, I'm of course no no fan of uh, lockdowns because mm. uh, these do more harm than than uh, benefit. These just uh, delay uh, the problem, uh, especially if you are early into into the spread. Um, then then um, okay, but that's that's another topic mm -hmm. of, of lockdowns. But um, uh, theoretically, if people start moving and everybody is at home, uh, it should work. So I'm not a, not a denier that a, a, a hard lockdown uh, could uh, slow the spread of the virus. Um, and it Except seems it that didn't stop uh, prisoners from being infected. 
<laughs> even uh, when they anticipated it. it. Well, it, it depends on when the lockdown is launched, because now now we know, for example, that in in uh, countries which have uh, uh, more tentacles to other parts of the world and more travelers and more busy airports and so on, uh, these so the the research the, the the, the surge of the, the infections much earlier and they were and they locked down uh, uh, late so if you lock down late and you have the disease in an advanced uh, state already or not the disease but the the, the pandemic the, the the virus spread uh, in an advanced uh, state you you can't prevent it anymore i'm uh, starting to think uh, you want to be hawaii and the infection starts in wuhan and you're notified uh, a week in advance and then maybe lockdowns could work yeah when you when <laughs> you get when you when you notice yeah when you get the news about the first uh, out of china transmissions yeah. you you lock down if you're an island uh, hawaii is not a good example because you have a lot of <laughs> yeah. uh, income from from tourism basically i don't know how many Percentages wise, just but, close uh, everything down. No planes in or <laughs> out. Just food. <laughs> yeah, you you can do that, but uh, if uh, it's questionable if it makes uh, sense still, yeah. I don't think so. But I'm doing the de devil's argument for lockdown. <laughs> purely theoretically, it could work, and it seems that it worked. Uh, it did work in some uh, countries, and uh, but the problem is that the price of the lockdown is so high. Right. Uh, the, the the damage is so big that when you realize it uh, afterwards, you decide that never again. So these countries, Czech Republic, Hungary, decided, okay, we cannot do another lockdown. So what what should we do? Um, we will do a partial lockdown or masks or whatever. We we, we try to slow mm -hmm. the, the the surge, but uh, no lockdown. And then these countries uh, seem to experience a even higher uh, surge and 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 uh, deaths and everything than than uh, compared to, for example, Sweden. Mm -hmm. um, the Czech Republic um, surpassed Sweden on the, the mortality um, charts a couple of weeks ago already, and Hungary is about to surpass Sweden. In, in a week or two, mm -hmm. I think two weeks, in two weeks time. So it seems that uh, there is no way out. Yeah. If you are in the middle of Europe, if you still want to do some, some exchanges with other people, uh, partial border closures are just stupid. You won't stop the yeah. virus uh, if you do partial uh, border closures. You, you have to stop all travel so that the virus cannot come in. If you manage to. Uh, but even internal travel, you know, doesn't uh, correlate with any, uh, you know, any, any Yeah, but uh, any during the summer, during the summer, the virus almost disappeared. You're right. Whether, whether it truly disappeared is, is questionable because yeah. uh, there are some hypotheses that uh, the virus actually uh, is dor lays dormant in mm -hmm. uh, some nerves or immune cells and just just reactivates when, when conditions uh, are more favorable and then That's we true. are back to back to seasonality mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it's it's a funny thing most people imagine that seasonality depends on on uh, weather and then, <laughs> yeah. uh, then this chain reaction somehow slows down during the summer and then the chain reaction of uh, transmission accelerates 
during late autumn and and uh, and uh, during the winter but uh, quite a quite some evidence uh, points to um, non non linear 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 transmission of of these viruses so it seems that um uh, you know the famous examples when in the 60s there were um there was a staff uh, shift on a a antarctic uh, research base so yeah. the complete staff was uh, replaced by by a new staff so everybody left the place uh, before winter came and then a new new staff uh, was placed uh, in, the, in the research base and um, after 17 weeks a coronavirus outbreak occurred. <laughs> so how do you explain this with uh, linear linear transmission? After yeah. 17 weeks of uh, complete isolation. Wow. That's four months. And they were living in a fridge, basically. <laughs> yeah, they were living in, in uh, minus uh, whatever uh, degrees, yeah. uh, completely separated from the whole world in uh, Ant Antarctic uh, winter. Amazing. So, this, you know, this course, is why they, they I, were... I, I always come back to to what uh, I think it was Osterholm who said it's it, you know trying to to stop it. It's trying to stop a virus is like trying to to stop the wind. It's not something you can do really fundamentally. You can protect yeah, yeah, yourself but, uh, from I, it. You can barricade, but you can't stop the wind. The wind is gonna. The the examples of of these countries, and of course we have New Zealand and Australia and uh, some some other countries uh, provoke to speculate about pre-existing immunity. But but there are some countries where where extreme isolation uh, seems to work, or or we have some evidence that it probably worked. And and then uh, you start thinking. You we see these examples. And then we see these uh, lockdowns uh, appearing to work. And then uh, the idea came to my mind that uh, perhaps uh, spread during the during a, a pandemic, when a new so-called novel virus is spreading uh, with substantial susceptibility in the population, the, the spread indeed more closely resembles a linear transmission, like a chain reaction. And then you have the the R uh, number of how many uh, people one infectious uh, man uh, can um, transmit to, like two point something or three. That's an average, of course. And and then you measure these things. But as soon as the vi the virus starts becoming uh, endemic, so establishes itself in a population, mm -hmm. it, it becomes a mix of linear transmission. So I cough and you inhale and you get it. And so much that the traditional view of how viruses uh, replicate or, or transmit between uh, animals or humans. And then uh, there is the other one where the virus lays dormant or, or just lays partly inactive or being controlled by the immune system or whatever happens because we don't really know uh, precisely for other viruses uh, which have this uh, dormancy or latency we, we, we do we do know about uh, how it occurs for example the herpes viruses 
uh, how they lay dormant in, in the nerves, nerve cells, and, and other viruses in, in other cells, and then uh, reactivate when the immune system becomes uh, suppressed by another infection, for example. Um, mm -hmm. And then they, 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 you have a herpes or whatever it's called. A, what is it called? In a English? cold sore. Yeah, a, uh, a sore. Then, then uh, it reactivates when you have another viral infection, for example. Yeah. And uh, I, I cannot exclude that something similar happens with respiratory viruses. Mm -hmm. Probably not in uh, in uh, probably not in uh, nerves, but it, it cannot be excluded because it is already described that, for example, from the nose, uh, SARS-CoV-2 goes up to the to the to the brain through the through the nerves. It can go up. I mean, and then that that's uh, associated with uh, severe disease. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, it it can. It could lay dormant in immune cells, for example, or epithelial cells kept in check by, by cytokines or, or whatever means. I don't know, by whatever, whatever means. We don't really know. But uh, it's, it's very funny when I think that uh, the latest, the most recent uh, WHO commissioned uh, review on uh, non-pharma, review of non-pharmaceutical interventions in the general public, which was published in, online in February, so just before uh, the, the, the pandemic, uh, probably it was finalized uh, late last year. But anyway, it's, it's the latest uh, uh, WHO commissioned uh, review, and it was done by uh, Hong Kong University researchers. So, you know, a masking country, mm -hmm. masking uh, city. And um, their conclusion is, is extremely interesting. They found that nothing seems to work. Masking in the general population doesn't seem to work. Uh, hand washing doesn't seem to work. And uh, other non-pharmaceutical interventions in the general public uh, don't seem to work. So this is the basic uh, conclusion. And then they start kind of speculating uh, in their last one or two sentences in, in the, or in the, the abstract. Uh, I don't remember word by word, but they, basically they uh, speculate that do we properly understand the transmission of these viruses? Because these should work. It's, it's just common sense. I mean, if you put a, a um, shield in front of your face, you cannot transmit a virus. Um, and and uh, the, the conclusion is that uh, we most likely don't properly understand the transmission ways mm. of these viruses. And this is ex exactly what, what I uh, started thinking about as well, that uh, uh, there is, uh, there's, as soon as there was at least one big wave of uh, infections, the virus kind of establishes itself as endemic in, in at least part of the population. And uh, during the summer, summer, it's suppressed or lays dormant or, or whatever, but when, when the, the conditions change, and, and these conditions change, uh, may change the virulence of the, of the virus, as well as the uh, activity or potency of the immune system. So these interactions between virus and immune system change in favor of the virus, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then when it happens, and then, then we can go into the details of seasonality because there is a lot of information out there, mostly uh, in connection with influenza, but, but also for, for other respiratory viruses that uh, how their, their membrane uh, softens up 
or hardens with a colder temperature or softens up with warmer mm -hmm. temperature. And they need this soft jelly-like uh, um, structure or texture uh, to, to merge with host cells, but they need uh, the, the more uh, rigid uh, version when they, when they spread in, in hostile uh, air or outside right, right. Uh, environment. So that then that's why, for example, where, why they may favor colder temperatures for quicker spread. Uh, but it also has an impact on the immune system. It was shown that that uh, monocytes and macrophages, for example, you know these uh, viral particle gobbling cells, uh, that their motion slows with uh, lower temperatures, mm -hmm. and uh, that there also humidity. Uh, humidity impacts the, the stability of the virus in aerosols or, or uh, particles, but humidity also impacts the flow of your your own mucus. Uh, your upward flow it's a continuous upward flow of mucus in your in your respiratory system and then you swallow it and there you have the connection to the digestive immune system you continuously swallow your own mucus coming from the respiratory system and uh, and if 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 the the uh, humidity is uh, above a certain range or also it's is below a certain range then the flow of the mucus changes slows down and if it slows down, it, it provides a better uh, uh, environment for, for the virus to bind and, and attack uh, cells below the, the mucus. So the, these, are, these are very interesting findings. And there yeah, are also many other, mucus for example, pol air pollution, <laughs> air pollution, uh, the impact of yes. air pollution, the impact of pollens, for example. Pollens interfere with viral uh, particles and they reduce infectivity of uh, viruses so for example this may be one of the mechanisms during the summer when you have uh, higher pollen uh, levels in the air and then this interferes with viruses so there are many env environmental factors which uh, interfere with uh, with the with both the immune, immune system and the virus uh, uh, infectivity Mm -hmm. And this basically, we, we don't fully know, at least I don't fully understand yet, which has higher and which uh, has lower importance. So how, how, it's, how this uh, is distributed between different parameters uh, mentioned already, uh, humidity, UV, for example, we forgot about UV, um, uh, temperature, pollens, whatever, many factors, mm -hmm. the importance of which is not fully clear yet, but we, we do see that these have a, a substantial impact and we are also uh, we also spend more time indoors of course when when weather is colder uh, we spend more times uh, more time indoors when the aerosols um, facilitate viral spread so mm -hmm. these these are pretty well understood not perhaps not the details but overall well understood yeah, I think for me, what it always says is that there's probably a lot you can do for your own internal terrain and how inhospitable you can make a life for a virus in your in your body. Maybe maybe enough yeah. just so that you can beat it back. And I think this is the public health message that hasn't gotten enough emphasis. No, absolutely, absolutely not. I think uh, you can influence these uh, external parameters a lot. It was shown, for example, uh, in connection with influenza, that um, uh, just airing the room yeah. regularly and intensively is is worth at least as much as a influenza vaccine. <laughs> right. So it reduced it reduced transmission by 50, 60 percent. 
-hmm. just airing the room. This is and, only one parameter. And that's then a lot because you have a 50% chance of transmitting it to a person that you live with, with coronavirus. So that means you, you'd be yeah. left with an absolute of 25, which is much yeah. better. Uh, air, airing the room is a, is a huge one. You can do it very easily. Another one is uh, setting a fairly stable humidity level in, in, in your uh, apartment or house. It's, a, it's, it's easy because it should be around 50%. Uh, more broadly, 40-60% uh, humidity, relative uh, humidity is, is ideal. And of course, what happens during winter, uh, during uh, most uh, older houses with uh, uh, traditional heating systems, uh, your, your humidity gradually drops when you start heating and stop airing your rooms. Stop airing uh, favors the, the viral, viral aerosols hanging around, but it also favors uh, the the even the infrequent uh, airing of, of the room favors uh, dropping the humidity because you lose absolute humidity, uh, relative humidity. You lose some, some water in the air every time you let in cold air mm -hmm. because the cold air contains much less uh, humidity. Right. So when you heat it up, the relative humidity drops. So this is what I've been experiencing for this uh, heating season. I was carefully watching. We started out around 62% and now we are down to 37%. So I should already start a humidifier to push it up above the, the critical 40% relative right. humidity. And, yeah, and these, these are relatively easy things. And then one, the elephant in the room is your own immune system, how you can yeah. support your own immune system, of course, uh, because that's where the, the, the biggest differences you can see uh, when you talk about susceptibility to this virus. You see the, mm -hmm. the age is the single biggest one. And then uh, you start with the sex. Um, male sex is, is more, much more susceptible. And then uh, the next one is, of course, all the comorbidities, so-called comorbidities, uh, basically uh, metabolic diseases. Mm -hmm. to put it shortly so yeah. and uh, i i just see people all over the internet whining about uh, how they are scared and they they will they, they will get the virus and the young people young ladies for example it's, it's, it's crazy i mean uh, they belong to the 99.99 percent uh, of uh, not falling for this uh, this virus and they, they, they go around and keep whining about uh, why others don't do something for them. I think they're scared of being blamed for infecting people more than being scared. Oh, not of actually really. They are, they are scared about uh, getting the virus. I, 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 every day I see somebody on my Facebook wall or, or wherever uh, crying about, uh, oh, well, everybody around me got the virus, so I will be uh, next. Yeah. What, what's what's going to happen? Uh, yeah, and and uh, I, the, the first question I ask: What what have you done? We have uh, March now; it's December. You had nine months. What, what have you done to to increase your chances of uh, mild course of disease or asymptomatic course mm -hmm. of disease? What, what have you done? What what could I have done? This is this is the normal reply. You could you could do a lot. I mean, you can lose uh, some weight, especially if it's, uh, if it's around the middle. Uh, you can increase your vitamin D. How much time you spent uh, in the sun during the summer, 
it's it's too late in, in early December. Uh, you you have no chances <laughs> in in uh, the, the the moderate climate uh, north hemisphere these uh, days. Absolutely, no chance. So uh, there was a lot of time to to intervene. Yeah, people and, uh, to people support your immune system nutritionally, uh, metabolically, um, with with sunshine, with good sleep, reducing the stress. Because if you are stressed out. That will suppress your immune system. That's 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 been long known. That if you have chronic stress, your immune system is being suppressed because it's a corticosteroid. You you get corticosteroid when you go to the hospital with a chronic infectious disease. Yeah. To suppress the immune system because uh, after a while it's the same with with this virus. After a while, uh, the the overreactive immune system is a much bigger problem than the, than the pathogen itself. Mm-hmm. So if you have an overreactive immune system, what what do you get? You get a corticosteroid. Yeah. And what 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 you have, uh, what you show when when uh, you are chronically stressed out, high corticosteroid. So it's 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 just common sense, really. Common mm-hmm. sense works uh, most of the time. Yeah, and you get that uh, Th2 dominance where you get going to overreact most likely. Uh, yeah, you I see everything. After a while, uh, the body tries everything to to remove something which is purportedly there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it may not even be there anymore, but uh, the this chain reaction just doesn't want to stop. Yeah. Um, but that, that, this has good reasons. Um, I mean, if you if you delve into the the immunometabolic part. Uh, how these immune cells operate uh, normally, how they react to different types of uh, triggers or, or stimuli, and how they uh, behave uh, metabolically when uh, the inflammation is in the resolving phase. Uh, then you start understanding a little bit better uh, what happens when you have high blood glucose, when you have high blood insulin, when you have high blood um, leptin, and when you have... Uh, uh, insulin resistance, for example, uh, what what role insulin plays in the initial response of T cells to to stimulation, and when your T cells are insulin resistant, they don't react properly to this uh, insulin stimulation, and so on and for and so forth. So there are many many details uh, which which uh, puts this into a little bit different uh, perspective, and then it makes starts making sense that. Why all those people with metabolic diseases uh, are are highly susceptible to to this infection, and why yeah. why why age age and, and especially males males are not able to recruit um, or or, or uh, stimulate T cells properly anymore. Yeah. So the difference between between sexes uh, can also be explained. And it's also apparently it was biological and not chronological aging that would best predicted uh, the the poor outcomes with COVID, which actually I would I would say further supports the link between the comorbidities that we're seeing, like diabetes and and obesity and all of those things that, of course, essentially age you uh, in one way or another. So there is so much there that could be mined for you know for lowering the risk i mean this we could literally change the in, uh, infection fatality rate right if we followed the different guidelines and yeah, well, i think we, <laughs> we know, have had we have had enough time 
Yeah. Of course, if, if it started out in March and uh, people were not, not aware of, of this, um, they could do nothing. So they got the virus early and they, they were susceptible. They couldn't do much about it. But then all the information started to see the light that uh, the obese are, are much more susceptible. People with diabetes are much more susceptible. Um, and um, and uh, high blood pressure and so on. There are many, basically all metabolic diseases. Yeah, and this doesn't bode well for vaccines. Vaccines work to the extent that they work because they take, they, they take advantage of what the body can do. That's what a good vaccine does. It's not, you know, doing everything itself. It's, it creates an initial response and then it has to, the dominoes have to fall after that. And when you have an imbalanced uh, TH1, TH2 system where you have TH2 dominance and you're going to get hyper responsiveness and you're not going to get the pro-regulatory aspects of the immune system, you're just going to get a lot of, let's say, a discriminate gunfire you're also not going to be able to start producing antibodies to it. You know, you're, you're going to be, uh, you're, you're going to activate the NLRP3 inflammasome, which is actually uh, interesting because one of the things that lower the NLP3 inflammasome is being in a fat burning state where you produce uh, beta hydroxybutyrate, which can bind to the HDAX basically. And through its, uh, methylatory action actually lower inflammation so you have to wonder people who've never seen a ketone in their whole life of course they have no defense against this sort of uh, inflammation um, yeah, the, the good thing is uh, when when you have ketones in your blood you are kind of enforcing uh, oxidative me metabolism right so uh, you that they even even experimentally it was shown that enforcing oxidative uh, metabolism in T cells greatly reduces uh, the susceptibility of uh, model animals to severe influenza, for example. Mm -hmm. So this this is absolutely crucial, and this is one place where where many people with uh, high insulin, high blood glucose uh, doesn't bode well. Because uh, many people uh, don't don't fare well when when they uh, see such a virus, because their initial activation of the immune system will be really sluggish, and they won't be able to recruit uh, enough uh, specific T cells, for example, and they have too high uh, neutrophils mm -hmm. already and macrophages uh, activated or suppressed uh, by high insulin. Uh, so, so their their kind of immunometabolic milieu, the, the internal environment is already scooted yeah. to to a certain uh, direction, which doesn't favor a quick and e efficient immune response. Yeah, this is what we see. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. This is what we see. If you fail to mount an, an initial strong antiviral response, mm -hmm. uh, you are into this uh, long COVID and severe. Uh, disease uh, uh, trajectory. So this is really interesting because, you know, one of the things you see when there is a response to a fecal microbial transplant in a ulcerative colitis patient, better outcomes are seen in the people who mount a fever. And mm. I'm, and you know, in vaccines, it's not uncommon uh, to induce a fever in people. And if I'm not mistaken, 
it could it is also the case that with vaccines you tend to see you know uh, a, a good response if it's sufficiently strong, essentially. And sometimes that comes as symptoms, unfortunately. Uh, but that is, can be a signal of, of proper response. So, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just wondering what, what, that, what that means for how we should be medicating people. It's, because it's, a, it's a brand new area, I think, of research, and it's not very popular so far that uh, the microbiota can have a say in, in, for example, vaccination. But it's not only vaccination, it's mm -hmm. also to natural infections. And uh, I'm sure that you will find a study which, which shows that after antibiotic treatment, uh, the uptake of vaccination is, is uh, more sluggish or, or right. uh, not as high as, as uh, in, in normal state. I'm pretty right. sure I've never looked for this, but uh, I can... I can even predict, not only suspect, but even predict that such study or studies uh, mm -hmm. exist, because it, yeah. it makes uh, it makes a lot of sense that uh, it's an interaction how your immune system is influenced by by the the microbiota and this balance is is then uh, destroyed or or screwed by by the antibiotic, and then uh, the uptake of the vaccination will be different and not beneficially. Yeah different so it's it's interesting because with an mrna vaccine you're going to have essentially a systemic response because this is going to get produced pretty much everywhere as far as i understand yeah, but that's probably a good thing right so you're going to get a, a systemic response and it's to the spike protein right that they're that they are yep. they, the, the, the potential benefit of the mrna vaccine mRNA type of vaccines is that uh, it, it will also stimulate the respiratory uh, mucosal immune system, which okay. regular jabs, uh, traditional jabs don't do. Okay. So I think there is a chance that uh, actually the, the mRNA vaccines will be more or closer to being sterilizing than, than, than traditional vaccines. Okay. There are also potential issues with the mRNA vaccines, but uh, actually the, the, the efficiency uh, may be uh, really higher than, than traditional. Yeah, and what vaccine. do you make of that? Because uh, I have to say, it, on the one hand, it is impressive when you have a 90% relative risk reduction in, in viral uh, transmission uh, between the groups. But when I look at the endpoint of viral transmission, Instead of ICU or hospitals admissions, I'm, I have to say I'm much less impressed. And I'm not sure if, if it's convincing enough to be given. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that uh, probably people are so scared that they don't mind um, causing problems for, for uh, others or even for themselves a little bit later uh, down the road. Um, Blocking transmission should be the, the the ultimate goal in in a vaccination for respiratory viruses because uh, if you don't block transmission, you put a huge selective pressure on the virus. So you you, you keep the virus uh, circulating and uh, and uh, if you use a mRNA vaccine, for example, but also the adenovirus uh, vector uses only the spike protein. So it, from this perspective, it's, it's exactly the same. Uh, you, you use a very narrow range of antigens, and meaning that you put a huge evolutionary pressure on that 
part of the virus or the, on the, mm. those uh, antigens, while at the same time, those parts are already the, the most uh, um, mutagenic. So the, the, those uh, are reported to be the, undergo the, the highest rate of mutations already right. without the pressure. So if you put even higher pressure on, on this one, that's potentially not a nice long-term solution. But uh, they, the, the producers or even health professionals do not even claim that these are long-term solutions. So right. I think these, these vaccines were rushed to market to, to prevent uh, or to substantially reduce the death rate from, from this uh, virus. That's, that was the, 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 the initial goal. And uh, I think there are other uh, vaccines in, in development uh, already. But I, I see some chance that these mRNA vaccines can uh, substantially reduce transmission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well. I, I will consider it a huge win if it has no serious side effects. That, that yes, will be my effects. main concern. Side effects we will see in 2023. That's when the, the trial ends. Right. Unless somebody terminates it early, which I, for which I see a very high chance now, yeah, because they will, they will deem the, the um, um, placebo group not getting this life-saving right. virus unethical. Where have we seen that before? <laughs> they will, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they will convert uh, everybody to, to vaccine, to the vaccine group, and then you lose, uh, basically you lose, uh, your control group for long-term mm -hmm. uh, follow-up. And then uh, we, do, we just won't see anything about uh, long-term results uh, just uh, through the, the vaccine uh, problem reporting system, which is rather flawed in, mm -hmm. in itself. So that then it would be difficult. Uh, I'm wondering say, what, did, what did these you, people signed yeah. actually in the placebo group, what, what right. kind of uh, agreement, because if they agreed to be kept in the placebo group until 2023, so in the long term, uh -huh. then there is not much to do. They should uh, keep their their agreement. They, right. they should keep their agreement, but I have no clue. But we already saw, you know, antibody-dependent enhancement in uh, two different uh, animal models, actually, with the coronavirus vaccines. So I'm not uh, I'm not totally reassured on on that end yet. Um, uh, that's that's uh, I think that's uh, mainly a problem with uh, non-neutralizing uh, antibodies. Yeah. And uh, the the benefit of using such a narrow range of antigens could be, which is very specific to this virus, could be exactly that uh, it, it will produce low numbers of uh, non-neutralizing and high numbers of neutralizing antibodies. Mm. So if it's neutralizing, then it binds to a, to a region of the virus, the spike, obviously, because uh, only the spike is administered in, in mm -hmm. these uh, vaccines. So it binds to the spike in a way that it prevents the virus from, from functioning, from merging with any host cells. And in, in, in that case, I don't see a huge um, potential for, for antibody-dependent enhancement mm -hmm. um, because uh, the spike is, is, is uh, the, most of the spike is really specific to this virus. Okay. Um, so, but, Let's hope you're but right. There are, there are other areas, other antigens on this virus or in this virus, uh, which could be exploited the same way. So I think in the long term, the safest way 
would be to include as many very specific antigens as possible right. in a vaccine and then uh, then then we uh, kind of uh, distribute the risk uh, mm. over many many antigens okay. not only the, the we already uh, that they were just recently read a uh, preprint which um, reported a single amino acid mutations on the uh, receptor binding domain which is the outer facing part of the the spike protein which uh, made both of the antibodies in the uh, what is it called the it begins with an r the 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 drug company who has oh, this antibody um, mix uh, forgot the name Oh, yeah, well, anyways, anyways. It's similar to the cosmetic company Revlon, but <laughs> I, I don't remember. <laughs> okay, okay. Doesn't no. matter. Uh, but but uh, they have oh, an gosh. antibody cocktail. With oh, uh, antibody cocktail, which uh, Trump right. uh, also got. Yeah. This antibody cocktail. And it, it, it consists of two antibodies and a single uh, amino acid mutation renders oh. both of these antibodies becoming non-neutralizing. Ouch! <laughs> that's a, that's so pretty specific. That's, and that's a single amino amino acid uh, wow. mutation, already out in the wild. Well, <laughs> at least there'll be a, a lot of happy drug companies to produce more antibody. Well, I would say, yeah, antibody test companies to produce much more kits, much more tests, always changing. It's going to keep them busy, I guess. Yeah, I think they have a chance for at least another round of uh, vaccines or a second uh, upgraded or improved or whatever. Perhaps they will make it for a three, for a third one. Who knows? It's a good business yeah. model anyway. So <laughs> right. I, I believe in my own Im immune system. So I'm not lining up for any vaccines at this point. Yeah, me neither. I will think about my, I will think of my wife. Mm -hmm. She's most likely through the, the wild infection, but mm -hmm. uh, nobody was... Uh, um cooperative to to prescribe an a antibody test mm -hmm. uh, among her doctors so we cannot know for sure i will think about it but uh, yeah yeah it's not a it's not a straightforward decision i would say at this point just to put it mildly but uh yeah i i just i just hope we can you know end this uh lockdown if the vaccine is a bad excuse for it a bad excuse for it so be it. I don't really know what to say. Uh, you know, you can you take what you can get, but the number of unvaccinated kids from tuberculosis and cancers and diabetes, uh, uh, heart attacks, and all that's all that that's coming up through the health system. I think it's a it's a scandal, and we have to we have to stop that wave. Uh, so I don't know what role the vaccine will play. We'll see. I'm not lining up to get it. You aren't either. I have nothing against uh, yeah, but those those people still but... scared. Those those people who are still scared, let them do it. I mean, it's their choice. Sure. So I, I, I'm yeah. not. I just uh, I'm more worried about the people who are not going to be choosing, like the kids or the elderly. That's I think where my concern lies mainly because they have no choice in the matter. Unfortunately, um, I don't know. It's uh, I'm I just worried about the, the health passport and all of that. That's yeah. Uh, you can never know. It's it's in the works, I think. That's really scary. <laughs> Much scarier than the vaccine, even. I have to say.
to be controlled about where you go and all of that. I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy a farm with my own cattle and then goats and then sheep and whatever. And then uh, I just stop caring about traveling and I will, I will dig out uh, a lake and I will bath in my own lake and don't (laughs) care about traveling. (laughs) Exactly. Have your own probiotic from the soil and the, and the animals. I'm already fermenting my own kefir, so it's oh, just nice. a step to nice. step I to have to, my uh, own milk. Yeah, have my own milk, and then we are one step further into being independent of these criminals. Right. <laughs> yeah, I thought you know what, the only intervention they would have have had to have done during this whole. Uh, Corona episode is just stop subsidizing the junk food industry, <laughs> and in and in a couple, maybe probably one month, you'd have a a massive fix to the excess deaths. Have we've had uh, we've had nine months already, so yeah, in nine yeah, months yeah. Uh, you can lose uh, 100 pounds, 50 kilos easily. Yeah. Some, some time back, I lost uh, 70 pounds, 30 something kilos in uh, five months. That's so massive. It's, 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 it's possible, mm-hmm. absolutely, if you are determined. And if you are really scared of this virus, you should have done it already. Right, if you, yeah. If you, have, if you have that excess weight, why not? If, uh, yeah, if just, the just fear, yesterday, yeah. Just yesterday, I saw on local TV that uh, famous, yeah, to, to some extent, famous musician, um and uh yeah, skin of color they are more susceptible for weight uh, weight gain and, and these kind of things and for to to metabolic diseases and uh the, the sad news was re- reported that uh he died in of covid and um if you see you see the pictures of the guy uh, put up and then they say he was he had no known comorbidities. <laughs> right. The guy was like uh, 170, like six foot tall, and and uh, 150 kilos, 330 pounds. <gasps> oh wow! <laughs> he had no known no comorbidities. comorbidities, and you see the pictures. You wow. you see the the photos uh, on TV, and you you start thinking, okay. And then you then you hear about uh, some friends working in ICUs that uh, oh, 90% of the people put on ventilators are uh, overweight and obese. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the first you recognize that uh, those people on, on ventilators are 90% uh, overweight and obese. Yeah. So this this I think was already clear in March. And if you if you haven't done anything in nine months. There's nobody else to blame. It's not to blame anybody who who is infecting others or young people going out and and mm-hmm. uh, parking or whatever. This is this this is always what young people do. Uh, what what is not always the case, for, or it hasn't been always the case that that 88% of a population is metabolically sick. Uh, the yeah. adult population. That's the US uh, in 2019. 88%. And 60% of kids are metabolically unhealthy. And I would that's, say that's on the low end estimates. I honestly, because if look at look at the people who are having a DEXA scan for fun and telling us about it, 
they say that the machines, the guys have never scanned someone without significant amounts of visceral fat. Like that they're the first people who, who barely don't have any visceral fat show up on the DEXA. I mean, mm. people like they don't even know what normal looks like anymore. Like we, we are so far from that, that I think, yeah, your estimate of 88 is, is true and probably even, even more jarring than that. It's probably even worse. <laughs> Yeah, we, we like to call, I think uh, some research team coined it uh, way back several several months ago, that it's a collision of two epidemics. Yeah, It's the obesity epidemic and the viral epidemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could add, perhaps it's the collision of three epidemics. It's malnutrition and vitamin D deficiency, yeah. uh, then obesity and meta- metabolic disease and the, the virus. So when and isolation? Yeah, I, you add isolation on top, it's the cherry because isolation depresses the immune system. I mean, it's, it's a basic need that's not met. It's, it's a depressant in all senses of the word. Um, it's terrible for you. Yeah, it's, it's no wonder that uh, previously we had a very severe, I mean, if you think of uh, influenza epidemics of uh, 68, Hong Kong flu and, and whatever flu there were, uh, 50 something there were uh, huge um, epidemics influenza epidemics and uh, a million people uh, died or, or, or more uh, in half the population in one season so it was more severe than this virus and considering the much better uh, health of the population right. on top of the lower number of the population that was a crazy deadly yeah. virus and this yeah. shouldn't be the uh, that deadly virus but uh, the, the high level of uh, sick people um, in, in the population, and of course the increasing age on top, because mm-hmm. um, I, I just read a paper, I think yesterday, that between 2000 and 20, 2018 probably, so in 18 years, the number of uh, above 65-year-old people increased by 60%. Oh, wow. So it's, it's such a short period of time. So it's more than 60% of uh, above 65-year-olds mm-hmm. around the world. And that's, that's a huge increase. So no wonder that we are more susceptible as a, as a society, as humanity right now, right. because we are more and more older people living around. There is, there is no wonder. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's to be expected. That it's to, it will continue. If a similar virus, a new uh, deadly influenza strain appears in a couple of years, Maybe in 20 years, in 20 years, there will be, again, 40% more mm-hmm. elderly. I think so you're right. We're, we're not coming to happen. terms with the demographics. We're not coming to terms with the health system we have and how we failed at people. So when you put both together, you have a failing health system, meaning the more technology it has, the, the worse the ratio of the outcomes that it can provide as the technology gets better. And at the same time, you have an aging population. And I think the collision is a good, is a good picture for it. Because what, what, like you said, it's going to repeat. It's going to repeat with this coronavirus or something else. And, and yes. we're going to see it. And maybe Especially the IFR of 0.27 could be 0.15 if we, you know, did something better on that end. I mean, it's a, it's a big difference in relative terms, you know. Especially so, if lab, lab safety remains uh, this pool. <laughs> you happen again. Yeah. Did you know that uh, SARS, the first virus, after the, the pandemic, after it has been contained or, or disappeared or whatever happened, uh, was released from labs four, four different times? <laughs> really? Oh, my God. 
<laughs> so between 2004 and 8 or, or something like that, uh, SARS, the first coronavirus, which was, which was much more deadly, uh, it had a CFR of close to 10%. Uh, it, it, it was released from different labs, at least what we know of, these, right. these we know of, it was released from different labs four different times. <laughs> it's not funny, but it makes me laugh because it's so ridiculous. It's like what we're doing with the atomic, uh, with, the, with the nuclear weapons, where a couple of times, if it wasn't for the common sense of one commander, then we would have ended up uh, blowing ourselves up already. Yeah, so... Uh, it's, it's, I don't know what it's going to take, but uh, I just hope we can get out of the lockdown and, and start focusing on, on removing those excess deaths of misery and despair and unvaccinated children. I think that's... Yeah, that's funny a, thing, you are not, you're not the first person I talk to who, who is really, um, who really expects uh, a quick um, spread of uh, vaccinations just because of uh, removing the, 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 the interventions. <laughs> Right, uh, lockdowns and similar masking, but uh, some people, uh, health officials already started uh, talking about uh, long-term masking because it yep. will, it will solve all problems of humanity, obviously. Yeah, the problem is just to 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 be consistent on the matter. You're going to have to sound like uh, an anti-vaxxer, an anti-masker, because you have to be able to point out when things don't work or they don't work in the way that's being presented and. There's no way not to sound extreme in this climate. So I think it's just, we've seen this in nutrition already. So it's not new for you and me. It's probably we new are, for we a lot are, of people. We are pro-vaxxers right now because we expect that it right. will really remove some of the exactly. <laughs> Very much so. We will, we will sing their praises far and wide. Um, yeah. So we'll see what, what comes of it. But uh, I'm, I'm looking at who's making what predictions and I'm keeping track and and so far, I've, I have to say I'm very impressed by what Ivor is doing with Dr. Claire, uh, Claire Craig and uh, Joel Smalley um, and, uh, and some others out there. We're doing some good, good investigative work using some publicly available statistics and doing us all a favor and exposing a lot of the nonsense. And, and Kevin McKernan, who's been excellent on the PCR and, and other testing technologies. So there's... There's good people to yeah. follow out there, so make sure you follow. Yeah, I think it's always useful to keep an open mind, though, because uh, I, I see that uh, some people uh, fall into a position uh, early, right. which which is not fully uh, substantiated, and then they they are very reluctant to to move away from that position if the evidence changes. And I think there has been there have been some changes to the to the evidence base uh, along along the time. Mm -hmm. um this year so for example we discussed the uh, herd immunity threshold and oh, right. uh, some yeah. people put out put out there uh these uh, 10 15 percent uh, levels which uh, um even i found a little bit uh too low to be honest and and uh, it seems that it's it's indeed closer to the 40 percent uh, mark even the with the heterogeneous uh, spreading factored in so I think uh, we must be open and, and uh, always skeptic. Skeptic not only with uh, in connection with what, what uh, uh, pushers say, but also in connection with what, what our friends say. It's right. important that uh, okay, let's 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 step back one little step and, and uh, think about it. 
right. before uh, just jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, yeah, it's much easier to jump on the bandwagon after you don't have to run next to the train. So it's a uh, <laughs> I think people take the easy way out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, skepticism is always nice, but uh, skepticism should be uh, all around so it's not specific to to one idea but uh, be right. skeptic about almost everything all right in indiscriminate in that sense <laughs> all right i will pause the recording here hi this is rafi your host of the evolutionary lens podcast i just want to let you know that you can support me at rafaelsertoli.substack.com you can get some free articles and emails and you can also uh, subscribe for some more in-depth content. Thanks.